Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Amanda Carpenter sitting in for Charlie Sykes. We're thinking about making this kind of a fun summer Monday thing. And it's even more fun because I get to chat again with my colleague, Will Salatan. What's going on? Hey, Amanda. Uh, we're in the part of the year that um, I like to affectionately refer to as really, really bad sleeping weather. So, <laughs> it's so are you really a cool warm. pillow guy? Do you have, my my son ab- have the sheets completely cool. Yeah, I I am obsessed with like you, you know humans. We're mammals, right? We're designed to like be you know curl up in the cold and you know snuggle together or like throw leaves on ourselves or go underground, whatever it is. This whole <laughs> this whole like hot, miserable, sweaty, gross. Like I I can't wait for this to be over. Okay, do you have any tips that I can pass on to my nine year old son who keeps flipping the pillow to find the cool side of it? I've actually been looking for pillowcases and things. Um, yeah, this is kind of a new thing to me because I just fall asleep in any kind of weather generally. So if you have any tips, I could use them. I do. I do have some really good tip for your son. Get a shovel and start digging. <laughs> Dig way, way underground because I've discovered way down there it's very cold. If you've ever been under the ground, tell your son it's nice and cold there. Okay, so I'm going to have to get him a basement to sleep in. Yes. Okay, note to self. Well, I have a news tip. Maybe you'll be able to sleep a little bit easier. Uh, I think a lot of people have been wondering about the status of almost Attorney General Jeffrey Clark, um, as he was the main subject of the January 6th hearings last week. Of course, he wasn't there. He's busy invoking the Fifth against even the most basic questionings. But he has made an appearance, he, even though his house got raided. Uh, he was dragged out of his house in his pajamas and his electronic devices were seized. He is now making his voice heard again on Twitter. Yeah. So Jeffrey Clark is, first of all, I, I want my new band name is going to be Jeff Clark's Pajamas because I can't get this image of him being out in the street. I, wasn't Roger Stone, by the way, out in his pajamas too? I think it was yes, the same kind of thing. it was another early raid the house. I don't remember yeah. what he's wearing because I generally try not to think about anything that Roger Stone is wearing or doing <laughs> most of the time. But I believe you're yeah. correct. Yeah, Jeff Clark. Uh, wait, wait, was he, he was a Fifth Amendment guy too. Um, I can't oh yeah, remember. he invoked it I, hundreds of times. There was a brief clip yeah. that they played of all the things that you know he he couldn't answer for various reasons. Because there was the great John Eastman video where a Fifth, 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 Fifth. They, you know, there's not even a sentence anymore. It's just Fifth. <laughs> well, you got to admire the brevity. Right. You would think that a guy, Clark or Eastman, you would think that if you kept your mouth shut when people were asking you very important questions to which America wants to know the answers, that you would have the grace to keep your mouth shut on social media. But apparently that was beyond Mr. Clark's abilities. No. And so this totally upstanding fine lawyer who only believed in upholding the Constitution and pursuing justice, you know, who supported doing so by looking at gate and voting machines that Italy was flipping, you know, every conspiracy that was available, he was willing to push. And of course, he was the person that wanted to issue the proof of concept letter to Georgia saying, of course, you can go ahead and hold a special session and appoint alternate electors based on whatever. He is once again showing his excellent legal judgment by retweeting videos from Project Veritas which you may remember from, you know, every other conspiracy theory related to voting on the internet. Yep. And in that video, there's supposedly a Democratic, some official in South Carolina talking about how she wants secret sleepers to infiltrate the Republican Party and then help the Democrats do something. She doesn't really say what. Uh, but but here's, here's the icing on the top. The only reason I bring it up 
is that our esteemed colleague Bill Crystal was name-checked. And what Jeffrey Clark says, there are sleepers all over the place that were exposed during the Trump era. Take the whole Lincoln Project. Take Bill Crystal. Take George Conway. There are many others. Their desire to work all along for the other team is obvious. I don't know any other Republicans like this. I, <laughs> I, I would love to be one of these secret sleepers. First of all, I'd like to be a sleeper, right? Like maybe if you'd like dig down under the under the earth and sleep there, you're a secret sleeper. Oh, there you this go. Whole this, thing. Is, this is a sleeping project. Yes. Okay. I, I right, see. I was thinking right. it was kind of a nod towards like sleeper cells and terrorists. Maybe my mind went there first, um, but maybe right. now we're aspiring to be secret sleepers who sleep soundly in the cold deep, dark depths. Yeah. Now, okay. So I think Jeff Clark was a way better off when people were laughing at him because they said, you know, go back to your office and we'll call you when there's an oil spill. When he was just sort of an incompetent environmental lawyer, not, not I mean, incompetent to, to run the justice department, but what we're increasingly getting directly from him now, right? He could have kept his mouth shut. We, we would only have like what he had previously said that's been reported by the January 6th committee to know how crazy he was. But now we can sort of see him talking about the sleeper cells. Uh, and that's, that's part of his whole conspiratorial mindset, right? That he he was the guy who Trump wanted to put in that job, in the attorney general's job, because he shared Trump's penchant for picking up insane stuff from the internet. What was the line that Trump said about the internet? Like, I, you guys aren't following it the way I am. Yeah, he did uh, it, say it, it, that. Why can't, aren't you guys finding this? But I think the money one was from Giuliani, where it was, we have a lot of theories, but no evidence. Right. Doesn't that right. sum up the internet itself when it comes to all these conspiracy theories? We have a lot of theories, uh, but no evidence. Totally. Go ahead and push it anyway. Totally. We'll see what happens. Leave it to the courts. Leave it to the Republican congressman. They'll take it from there. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So we have like, you know, and this is one of the crazy things to me about the information age. Like, I think a lot of people who were fundamentally optimistic, and I admit that I have often been one of these people, right? believed that the advent of the in, of the internet of like oh my gosh humans can instantly communicate with each other we can exchange information we can we don't have to wait we don't have to be ignorant we can get online and learn things and i kind of thought that that's what would happen and totally the opposite has happened right like the internet has made it possible for one crazy person to to put out as you're putting it a theory right not evidence but like a theory an idea that then catches on somewhere it's like a contagion it's like a virus and people aren't filtering for facts, right? They're just like, hey, I like that theory because it serves my point of view, my agenda, whatever, right? And so Trump is like grabbing hold of everything he can on the internet. And Jeff Clark is grabbing hold of whatever he can on the internet. It's sleeper cells. It's like Italy gate. It's what the satellite, it's all that crazy stuff. So I'm really kind of disappointed in what humans have done with the internet. And I feel like January 6th is part of that. Well, before we get into more important topics of the day, I, I do want to stick up for the internet briefly. I don't think we saw these crazy conspiracy theories taking hold of the human mind until the advent of social media. I mean, the internet itself is great for sharing information, but what has really changed things is how engagement and preying on emotional response propels connections and sharing of types of information with social media. I, I Really, that's the game changer. And it has a lot to do with the algorithms and interconnectivity. Um, but basically, the ability for social media to prey upon very base human impulses when it comes to feeling scared or getting a reward for you know, sharing a picture 
and, and things of that nature is really something I don't think we've even begun to understand. Okay, I think that's a useful distinction between internet and social media, but is the problem- The people, the, of course. Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> Like, and this is an area where, like, as some as somebody who's basically a liberal, like, I think conservatives, this is something they have, right? Conservatives generally have a more pessimistic view of people, and, like, people left alone will not be virtuous. People have to be taught to be virtuous. And, it's like, I feel like this illustrates it. So let's put it this way. I think you're right about the distinction between the internet, per se, and social media. But I think social media was going to happen anyway because of people, right? Because people respond not so much to information, but to affection, to sentiment. And so they're going to go with what makes them feel good or it gets them riled up, not with what they, not with, you know, knowledge and learning. Yeah, I agree with that. But now we have to talk about something that I am very curious to see how the internet treats this discussion. And this, of course, has to do with the overturning of Roe v. Wade on Friday and is a lot of people here at the Bulwark have predicted, sort of feared, warned about, once this decision is made, there will be not a national conversation about abortion and what kind of laws and reforms must be uh, put in place, or if at all, um, with road. Now it's gone to all 50 states, probably down to the local level. And we saw, obviously, immediate protests breaking out in numerous cities. But just as a, I don't think you've had a chance to weigh on it, you have a great piece in the Bulwark today about the phony doctrine of the potential of life. But I just want to get your baseline reaction before we go into your piece. Well, everyone was sort of expecting the Supreme Court to do this once. I mean, I didn't- Were you? I, because I actually thought there was a good chance that they would take the Roberts line. But I mean, really showing that Chief Justice Roberts has absolutely no sway with conservatives on his own bench is a really interesting element of this decision. Yeah, well, mathematically, I think Roberts had plenty of sway right up until Amy Coney Barrett got confirmed and then he lost it, right? It's just just one justice made the difference between John Roberts having sway and not having sway. But let me do some pundit accountability first. Okay, I confess, I'm one of the pundits who said for like decades, the Supreme Court's not gonna overturn Roe v. Wade. And it and was why did reasonable- you think that? that? Because the dog should not want to catch the car. I think this is really bad for Republicans. I think what is good for the Republican Party is to have a base of voters who are really pissed off about Roe v. Wade and want to, you know, vote Republican because they, they, they're just constantly grinding against this thing. This is fear, infuriating them. But if you actually overturn Roe v. Wade, then all the pro-choice people who for decades have relied on the Supreme Court and have basically been lazy and have voted on other issues, not abortion, suddenly go, holy cow, the court isn't protecting me anymore. I have to protect me. And they start asking questions like, wait a minute, is the candidate running for governor in my state, the Republican? Are they going to ban abortion? Which was not an issue before, right? There are more pro-choice voters than pro-life voters on the whole, but pro-choice voters don't vote the issue. If they start voting the issue because Roe is gone, that's really bad for the Republican Party. So that was my theory about why this wouldn't happen. But I underestimated how many justices they could get on at once. And, you know, here we are. Well, so, I just want to react to that real briefly, because I was mm -hmm. sort of um, interested to see what the pro-life leaders would say now. Of course, you you had this big victory. You remember when the leaked memo came out, people were sort of quiet. And mm -hmm. you couldn't judge whether it's because they were cautious, they were worried that they actually got what they wanted, 
or what was going on in their minds. But then I saw a statement from Marjorie Dannenfelser, who is a leader of the Susan B. Anthony pro-life group, you know, the big one who's been fighting Mm -hmm. this forever. And so, of course, she was asked, what do you say? Like, is your work done? And she was like, of course it's not. Now we're going to have this fight in all 50 states and we are going to continue fighting until every life is saved. And so instead of thinking that, yay, check the box, we did this. Absolutely not, because now they get to lobby in all 50 states on 50 fronts instead of one. And so they're absolutely viewing this as a much bigger fight uh, in light of this decision, which is counterintuitive, but that's exactly what she's saying. Well, to me, it feels like what she's saying is logical. Like, you know, we, we, we're we not here just to overturn Roe v. Wade. We're here to overturn Roe v. Wade so we can pass these laws. And just to go back to our what we were talking about, human nature, I think part of human nature is to keep pushing until you really piss people off, right? So you 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 got, you were upset about Roe v. Wade, these, these unelected judges telling us what we can and can't do, and you get people all upset about that. And eventually you get rid of the, you, you, the unelected justices finally let you do what you want to do. And now you start doing it. Now you start banning abortion. And I believe that as that happens, as pro-lifers push farther and farther, we already have trigger laws that have gone into effect, right? We have, and these laws are, are they ban all abortions. Like some of them, there's bans at six weeks, there's bans at conception. And, you know, that goes well beyond what the polls support. And as you start to implement these laws, as you start to prosecute doctors, and as like, you start hearing cases of like women who are using a coat hanger or whatever it is, it will start to get very ugly. You know, in South Dakota, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota was on TV this weekend and she's talking about like telemedicine. Like she has a bill to like ban, you know, telemedicine abortions. Well, now this is not just like you can't go to an abortion clinic. This is the the state government of South Dakota trying to prevent you from getting a pill in the mail that you would use at home to induce an, a chemical abortion. I mean, this starts to get real intrusive real fast. So I think the more that Marjorie Dannenfelser gets what she wants, the more people are going to be pissed off and the bigger the backlash is going to be. What do you think? I do think that there is some kind of reconciliation that has to happen among the conservative activists when it comes to actually what they wanted, right? Because if you listen to a lot of the self-styled Republican surrogates on television who probably are uncomfortable with this, they keep saying, whoa, 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 this doesn't, this doesn't stop abortion. All this does is regulate the decision-making back to the states where it belongs so that the people closest to this decision have the closest access to their elected leaders. You know, some formulation of that is pretty much the stock answer. But immediately after this decision, Mike Pence put out a statement essentially calling for a national ban. And so you really can't have it both ways and saying, oh, we just want this to be left to the states. And oh, by the way, now we're going to campaign for a national ban no matter what. Like those two things are at odds. And I do think that's probably what most conservative you know, activists, if they never have to answer questions about when these procedures are needed to actually save the life of the woman or any kind of hard questions like that would say that they would advocate for. And that's probably the constituency that Mike Pence thinks that he can cultivate in order to attempt to run for president again. I don't think it's politically workable, but that's certainly what they're saying. That's really interesting. You know, I wonder, Amanda, if what's going to happen now is going to be what happened with Roe v. Wade to begin with in reverse. That is to say, so abortion was illegal in all these states back then. 
And there was just this tremendous pressure of people being very unhappy with that. It was too extreme. And then the Supreme Court, you know, pans down Roe v. Wade, and there's this big relief. But then what happens is pro-choice people are going further and further, and there's more Supreme Court cases that ban more and more restrictions to a point where people are like, well, we didn't mean that. That goes too far. And then you get a, a backlash that took years and years and decades against that. And I wonder if what's happening now is that in reverse, which is to say, like, there was a lot of anger at Roe v. Wade. Why don't you let us pass our laws? Just let us, just let us pass our own laws. We can figure it out, right? Different states will have different laws. And then Roe v. Wade gets overturned. And very quickly, we have this movement to do stuff like, like the Pence thing. Is that That's, I assume, a ban at conception, right? He wants to ban abortion at conception. Yeah, I believe so. But it's not. It, right. Again, here's the thing. And let me just talk a little bit about my experience with the conservative movement. Nobody ever spells it out. I worked for Senator Jim DeMint, social conservative, as his speechwriter. I worked for Ted Cruz as his communications director. Before that, I worked for Human Events, which had very pro-life editorial leadership. And I just have to tell you, I've, in those, what, maybe 10, 15 years of conservative media and political experience, I heard a lot about the pro-life movement. Um, You know, I consider myself pro-life were around many other pro-lifers. Never once did I hear a discussion about what happens when there's an ectopic pregnancy. Not once. Mm-hmm. I heard a lot about partial birth abortion in the third trimester. It wasn't until I became of age and started hearing from other women who became mothers who desperately wanted their children where something went terribly wrong at the end of their pregnancy, outside of their control. And unfortunately, it's tragic. They weren't able to have that child. It wasn't until I became older and heard about friends of mine who had miscarriages and had to have uh, abortive-like procedures, you know, DNCs, which are traumatic. They never wanted those. All of those women in those categories would consider themselves to be pro-life. Mm-hmm. There's women who don't want this to happen that find themselves in a circumstance where these things sort of happen to them. And I don't know what happened. I would really like to sit down with somebody like Mike Pence or or anybody and say, okay, you're pro-life, I'm pro-life. What do you do when a woman has a miscarriage? The baby does not, it's almost certainly terminal. She's bleeding out. She goes to an emergency room and they say abortion's banned. What happens to her? I mean, we're going to find out, right? But these mm-hmm. are conversations I never heard discussed. It just was pivoted. Like, the only way abortion was discussed was in the context of healthy pregnancies that where the babies were just simply unwanted. And mm-hmm. I know now, much more than I did then, how much more complicated these decisions in this discussion is. And I think there's room for pro-life voices in this discussion, but I do need the men who are making these decisions to engage in these sort of questions. I want to stay on this for just a second because what you just said is absolutely the crux of the issue, in my opinion. So this is why I am pro-choice. I share the sentiments of a lot of pro-life people. I think abortion is deeply troubling. I think if you just look at what happens in abortion, this is a developing human being. It is just a fact. You can see it. And it is killed in an abortion. That is hugely morally problematic. But 
But the reason why I'm not a pro-lifer in the sense of wanting to ban abortion is for exactly the reasons you're describing. That is, the actual mechanics of having the government ban this and enforce a ban are grotesque, right? You will have doctors being hauled into the dock. You will have, you say you had a miscarriage, miss, but yes. you know, the, can you produce evidence for it? And these pills come to people in the mail. We're going to try to stop you from getting these pills. The government intervention gets grotesque and it gets intrusive really fast. And I think there are better ways to promote a culture of life than to have the government banning abortion. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And yeah, just to kind of answer the other side of that coin, I would never describe myself as pro-choice because of the fact that it is my view that the pro-choice movement has never allowed for any kind of nuance. You have to be, in order to be pro-choice, you are for abortion for any reason. It is only left up to the mother, and you can have it for any reason you want. And I certainly think there should be limits on it. Um, But at the same time, going for total abortion bans where women are going to die trying to deliver children they wanted is certainly not a pro-life position. You know, Amanda, I really appreciate the way you've thought this through and are thinking this through. And one of my questions about having come to The Bulwark is working with a lot of people who have been pro-life like you and who are thinking about this now that it's a real thing and thinking about sort of if we're former Republicans, but we're still conservative, we still believe in life, how we're going to implement that. So I'm very curious to see how you and my other colleagues at The Bulwark are thinking through these issues. Well, this is certainly not going away. And, you know, this is not my favorite topic to talk about. I will readily admit that. Um, But it means a lot, Will, to be able to work through it in good faith with you. Because for as long as I've had discussions with people as a woman in the media, it's been hard to be comfortable just being able to say what you think. And you make that very easy. So I thank you for that. Now I just want to flip to a little bit of the reaction on the Sunday shows, because there was a lot of that. And I think you like the way that Elizabeth Warren framed it over the weekend. So let's play that clip. Look, what she's really saying is that when this decision is made, it should be made by the government, that the government should move in and the government should determine whether or not a pregnancy is forced to continue or whether or not a pregnancy can be terminated. I believe, and it has been the constitutional right of women across this nation for nearly half a century, for the woman to be able to make that decision with her doctor, with her religious advisor, with her uh, family, but not something that the government should be in the middle of. Okay, so I love this statement from Elizabeth Warren, who I don't normally agree with about a lot of things, but... She totally nails the way to present the pro-choice case, which it is, sounds almost conservative. It is yeah. extremely so. This just to be upfront with everybody, I wrote a whole book about this, and the whole point of the book is exactly what you said, Amanda. That this is a conservative message, and what Elizabeth Warren does in this statement is she says this is a choice. First of all, it's not about whether to have the abortion, right? So you don't have to be pro-abortion to be pro-choice. You can be anti-abortion. Pro, the question is who's going to make the abortion decision. So one option is the government makes the decision. Boo, everybody hates the government, right? We don't want the government doing it. But against that, Elizabeth Warren doesn't just say it's a woman's right. Because a lot of people, for good reasons and bad reasons, don't like the idea of women getting to do whatever they want. That is to say, like, some some people, it's sexism. Some people, it's just like, well, individuals, we don't feel comfortable with them making all the... But what Elizabeth Warren says is not just this one person. It's her and her family 
and her doctor and her religious advisor. So Elizabeth Warren is taking the entire, all of civil society, right? She's taking not just like the women in the medical community, but the re- faith, faith. It's a church. She's, this woman is talking to her pastor, to her rabbi, to whoever, right? And, and all of that is involved in this very deeply moral decision about whether, given her circumstances, she should end the pregnancy or continue the pregnancy. So for a lot of people who feel like this is a moral issue, because it is a moral issue, that formulation of the pro-choice position says, we welcome you. We believe in faith. We believe in family. And that is exercised. It is implemented through personal choice, not through the government. So that's why I love her rendering of the message. No, I think that's far preferable to some of the messaging that I've heard uh, previously. I, I do kind of raise a flag a little bit because of the fact that we have lots of laws on the books to protect life when it comes to, you know, it just even basic driving safety. And so it's a fine argument. It does strike a moderate sort of tone, but I do sort of tune it out because it's like, well, we have, there's all kinds of laws to protect people from dying. Why wouldn't we have some on the federal books when it comes to abortion? Mm-hmm. And that's a you know an understandable rejoinder, uh, but I think Elizabeth Warren's version of it is the best version. That I mean, it's the most broadly appealing version. Okay, well let's listen to Stacey Abrams was also on Fox News. Were you surprised to see her uh, pop up on Fox News talking about this? Yeah, well she's been doing a couple of interviews um, recently, and I think she just you know it, it gets her some publicity, gets some fun fundraising going, that kind of thing. Okay, well let's listen to see how she framed it with Martha McCallum. We are seeing in different states that there will be different limitations based on uh, when people would be able to get an abortion. Do you support any limitation on abortion or does it do you think that women should have the right to have an abortion all the way up to nine months? I believe an abortion is a medical decision, and I believe that that should be a choice made between a doctor and a woman and in consultation with her family. But I think the challenge that we have is that we keep putting this in a political space. This is a medical decision. And the medical choices that should be made should be governed by what is best for that woman and what is best at the suggestion of and advice of their doctor. Okay, here's Stacey Abrams trying to say the same thing as Elizabeth Warren is saying, but it's totally wrong. It totally doesn't work because Mm. the question was, do you favor any limits on abortion, any limits. And I really right? wanted to see how she answered that question because that's always the question for me. And you can never get an answer, you know, I don't want to say from any Democrat, but from Democrats running for office, you can, I, I, I cannot think of one example in my life of a Democrat that's offered one limitation or restriction on the procedure. Yeah, and, and like, I, I understand the sort of you know, mentality of like, oh, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Don't, admit, don't, don't accept anything. That is totally the wrong approach because people, as you're saying, Amanda, you are not abnormal here, Amanda. You, you are where America is, right? It, this is a moral issue and every right, as you're pointing out, has limits. And it's easy. It's easy from a pro-choice point of view to say, you know, it, we believe in the right to abortion. We don't want the government making all these decisions, but there are reasonable limits. Like, for example, the fact that literally under Roe v. Wade, states can ban abortion at viability, which is like just a starter, like right? the very basic thing. This, the fetus can survive outside if it was delivered. So no, you can't terminate it at this point. That would be that would be horrible and wrong unless there's some like horrible medical condition, which makes it unsurvivable anyway. So, you know, uh, it would have been so simple to just say that Stacey Abrams won't say it. Instead, she says it's a medical decision. What's like, yeah, it's medical, but it's also moral and not a single thing. 
that Stacey Abrams said there acknowledged the moral complexity of the issue. Yeah. And here's the thing. I I don't mind hearing the medical argument because it is a medical procedure. And But here's what I don't understand. And I don't know if this just has to do with the stigma of women's stuff. But if you're going to talk about why these medical procedures are needed, especially late term, and maybe she doesn't want to talk about it because it's too gory, but that's the reason why you need it. Again, there's women that never wanted to have an abortion that are faced with these decisions. And so to me, the left is always very eager to you know, tell your story, tell your truth, but no one ever wants to tell those truths. And there she inched right up to it and saying it's a medical decision, but never explaining why. And I just, I, you know, this is part of my feminist version of me coming out. If you're not willing to talk about these things that happen to women, don't be upset when other people don't know. I mean, as a woman that has two children and was always continually surprised about the things that happen to you, that things people don't talk about, there's been a huge movement on the feminist left to talk about these things. But still, when it comes to this, someone like Stacey Abrams isn't willing to put that reality on the table. And I, I find that stunning. Yeah. Well, this was, uh, you know, one of the themes that I know from writing my book was over the years, exactly what you right, said. Well, I mean, what is the name of your book? You got to plug it if you're going to plug it. <laughs> it's called Bearing Right and says the subtitle is How Conservatives Won the Abortion War. And it goes exactly to your point about sort of the conservative messaging around this. So when I was writing, I was writing about the message that, that we're seeing today, the who decides message, government decides versus woman, family, doctor, et cetera. The message prior to that from the pro-choice movement was tell your story. It's exactly what you're saying, Amanda. It was like women's stories are very complicated. They're all different. And we need to tell people the story so they understand how complicated this issue is. Um, so it is tragic and strange, as you're pointing out, like not to be focusing, uh, not to be telling more of those stories. And now there's one more piece of sound uh, that I want to play from Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson that I think really gets into something really important you wrote about today in The Bulwark. And so in Arkansas, the right to contraception is important. It's recognized. It's not going to be touched. And uh, that's that's the outcome here. And again, every state can debate that. But uh, I don't see that's a threat. And it's very important now to assure women that... Right the access to contraception is going to be able to continue. Does plan, but does the, does the morning after pill qualify as contraception? Well, every state, again, uh, will uh, make that determination. So it's not and clear? Th- those regulations that in will, Arkansas? they will determine will be reviewed by the court. Okay. In Arkansas, that should not be an issue. Okay, well, so after this decision came down, immediately people began to wonder how it would apply to other issues such as gay marriage, contraception. You have Justice Alito saying, of course, this can't apply to other things. And then you have Justice Thomas saying, of course we will, except for interracial marriage somehow. Tell us. <laughs> right. Okay. So, Amanda, I have a little bit of a weird, but I think correct analysis. Weird in these senses. You know, I'm not sort of one way or the other on the Dobbs decision. I think the Dobbs decision is unprincipled because there are actually three opinions out there aside from the dissent. What the Supreme Court, the five justices said in Dobbs, Mm -hmm. then there is a separate opinion from Justice Thomas, then there's a separate opinion from Justice Roberts, okay? And 
that Robert's position is a principled position that says the court should do as little as necessary when it rules. Here we were asked to approve a 15-week abortion ban. So we should say that that is okay, right? Well, you can ban abortions before viability, at least at 15 weeks. And we're not going to go farther than that. We're not going to say more than that because the conservative thing from Justice Roberts' point of view is for the judges to do as little as necessary when they're called upon. That's a principled position. At the other end is Justice Thomas. And what Justice Thomas said is, Look, all of these cases, these privacy cases, substantive due process, rights that are not written in the Constitution, but we sort of feel like maybe people should have them, you know, the right to, you know, be left alone in your sexual relationships, the right to marry a person of whoever you want, if they're the same sex or whatever, the right to uh, birth control, and then the right to abortion. All of it is made up, right? Roe is part of that, and we're going to tear all that down. Let's roll back all of those cases. That is... I disagree with that, but that is a principled position, right? It says the Supreme Court's not going to get involved in those rights. If you want them, you go talk to your governor or your state legislature. What the Supreme Court did, what Justice Alito did in Dobbs, what these five justices, the Trump justices and the other two did in Dobbs was neither the principled Thomas position nor the principled Roberts position. They went in the middle. They like went farther than was necessary. Mississippi comes to them with a 15-week abortion ban and they say, hey, we're going to say you can ban all abortions. We're going to go all out, except except they pull up at the implication of that, which is if we're getting rid of Roe v. Wade because abortion's not in the Constitution, then, hey, while we're at it, the right to contraception is not in the Constitution, the right to gay marriage is not in the Constitution, the right to private consensual sexual activity not being prosecuted, you and your you know same-sex partner, none of that's in the Constitution, so let's revisit all of that. Thomas says they should do that. And this court said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not going to follow the implications because let's be honest, Amanda, it's politics, right? They know that it would be really unpopular if they did that. So they say, we're not going to do that because abortion is different from all those other cases. How is it different? Because abortion takes potential life. And every time they say this, literally like six times in the opinion, do they quote the Constitution? Is there some clause in the Constitution that these good originalist conservative justices can quote? No, no, nowhere in, in the, for the sake of that principle do they quote the Constitution. They literally quote Roe. They literally quote Casey. The two opinions, they are chucking out the window, right? So they're mm. getting rid of all the made up stuff in Roe and Casey, except this one thing, the idea of the of uh, the state's interest in potential life, which somehow magically protects the court from following the implications of its logic. Hmm. Well, who's going to make them follow? They don't have to, right? They're justices. Nope. 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 They don't have to. And, you know, to be fair, there aren't five justices to overturn the right to use birth control or to overturn same-sex marriage or anything, but it's not for lack of principle, right? And so, yeah, if they were politicians, we'd be like, okay, so, you know, they, there aren't enough of them to like pass such a law. But damn it, Amanda, they are justices of the Supreme Court and they're lecturing us about what's in the Constitution and what's not. And then they play this absolutely cynical political game of inventing a principle, literally grabbing it from the, the opinions they're throwing out and saying, and this protects us from having to follow through on our on the logic of our jurisprudence. Hmm. That's really interesting. You know who else isn't following the implications? No implications, straight to the politics. I'll give you uh, two guesses. Uh, (laughs) I'll take Uh, Donald Trump for my first. Yeah, Donald Trump is one and Kevin McCarthy. So in light of this decision, Kevin McCarthy just issued a tweet, his reaction. Extreme policies are now the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Every House Democrat is on record as voting in favor of taxpayer-funded abortion on demand, even up to the point of birth. 
Now here's another one. Pray for the safety of our Supreme Court justices, for churches across the country, and for crisis pregnancy centers that are literally under attack from the radical left. And I'm only pointing this out because I do think this is going to be the go-to pivot. Donald Trump was also in Illinois over the weekend. And let's play a little bit of sound from him as to how he framed his reaction to the decision. And I especially want to commend the justices for standing strong in the face of outrageous threats and even violence. You've been seeing what's been going on. There's never been a time like this. The left-wing campaign of terror directed at the Supreme Court in recent months is unlike anything in the history of our country. The attempted assassination of Justice Kavanaugh, the illegal intimidation of Justice's homes, and the radical left's violent terrorist attacks on pro-life centers were a frontal assault on our republic. That's what they should be investigating. This was an organized and concentrated effort to threaten the court and interfere with its decisions. But the justices stood their ground against these extremists and these terrorists, and they did not back down. Congratulations and thank you. To this day, the leaders of the Democrat Party have failed to forcefully condemn the violence and threats and hold the perpetrators accountable. There could be no greater illustration of the two-tiered system of justice. We've never had anything like what's going on right now. All right. Well, I look at this and I see the protests, obviously, in reaction to Roe started in force over the weekend. They probably aren't going away. Should we be worried about the potential for violence and how Republicans like Donald Trump will weaponize that? Yeah, I think we should be worried. Um, I mean, it, I, I'm very torn about how to answer, Amanda, because... Mm-hmm. I, 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 well, go okay. ahead and react to what I, Donald Trump said. <laughs> you can do that first. So, yeah. okay. So, tr- I mean, look, Trump is uh, obviously one of the worst human beings who was ever born, right? So, I mean, <laughs> let me just set that aside for a minute. It'd be just a terrible, terrible human being and extremely dangerous. But he's kind of right there about the, uh, the, the about the, the threat of violence. and And I feel guilty, Amanda, because... You know, last week I was, I wanted to make a note to say this and I didn't say it. And this gives me an opportunity to say it. It, it, please people do not threaten, do not go to first, certainly do not be threatening to kill Supreme Court justices. Do not be physically. Yeah. Yeah. Do not be physically intimidating them. Do not go to their houses. Do not, this is not helpful in any way. And it is wrong. It is deeply wrong. And I, I just want to appeal to my friends because I I know people who are on the left who are furious about all of this, right? Mm-hmm. They're furious about the Supreme Court opinions. They're furious about January 6th. And they think that the solution is for them to up their game in terms of being menacing, right? Like this That's is- That's so funny. Can people- I just, I just want to react to that because I've also seen that sentiment. And at the same time, I look at a lot of these protests, I understand the rage and think, what a waste of your time. You know, when we had the Tea Party stuff that was going on, there were protests, but at every protest, there was an intense focus on organizing, finding candidates to run, get behind them. I mean, they were basically voter recruitment, registration, enthusiasm efforts. Going out and marching in the streets with no, you know, organization or purpose is really a waste of time. Do yeah. you disagree with me yeah. on that? I think, uh, no, I, mean, I, totally I think that's going to make a lot of liberals upset. But really, I mean, the women's march where you saw everybody marching in the streets, I, I you know, I, 
I will listen to arguments about how that materialized into solid political gains. And yes, you know, I, I view it as more Donald Trump losing the House and the Senate. Um, but I don't see a political purpose to these actions. Well, let me distinguish between, because I was thinking when you asked the question about protests at, at homes, right? So, yes. I mean, I understand why people protest. You want solidarity. You want to get out on the street. You see each other. You see how many of you there are. And it's very, it's it's emboldening. It's I mean, this is why Trump rallies are, are, are effective. People see other people and like, yes, we've mobilized. And it gets everybody worked up, right? And you're expressing how angry you are. And I totally understand that. The ones that are at justice's homes are like, that's dangerous. That's affirmatively bad. We don't want to be intimidating public officials. Set that aside. Let me come back to your point about the time wasting, right? Mm -hmm. It's crazy. It's crazy for you to be spending your time on the Supreme Court at this point. Those justices are locked in. They're going to be there for a long time. Furthermore, in the abortion decision, in the Dobbs decision, unlike the guns decision that we had last week, the Supreme Court isn't telling you what your state can't do. They're telling you what your state can do, right? We're not going to protect the right to abortion. But if you want to protect the right to abortion, you can elect a governor and state legislators mm -hmm. who, or you can pass a constitutional amendment in your state, right? You have all this power. So people get out there and do that, right? Do you know the people who you're voting for? Do you know what their position is on the right to choose? If you don't, find out and vote on it. Don't vote on inflation. Don't vote on crime. Don't vote on the border. Vote on this. If you don't vote on this, then you're not doing squat, all of the marching or whatever, you know, so Absolutely. People should be focusing on elections. That is where you're going to hit them where it hurts. That is where you're going to make a difference in terms of the policy of your state. Yeah. And no, it's the thing that brought to mind that kind of distilled it. As I was reading coverage over the weekend, there was a massive protest in front of the White House to, I guess, in theory, because they felt the Democrats weren't doing enough when Joe Biden wasn't even there. It's just that kind of stuff where I look at it and say, what are you doing here, folks? Um, but I don't think the protests are going to go away. And I do think that there is a firm Republican playbook already established saying, look at this unfair double standard. You know, we had that one incident on January 6th and the left keeps protesting and rioting again and again, and there's never any accountability for it. Um, but outside the politics of it, I, I am worried about the increasingly just violent atmosphere. And I'm not saying that there's violence displayed really over the week, although I think there was some incidents maybe in Portland. But what comes to my mind is that there's video uh, somewhere in the Midwest, I can't remember quite which state, of a truck really just blowing through a protest of liberal women. And that mm -hmm. kind of stuff is really frightening to me because I, I think people barely blinked at, at what happened. I don't think anybody was hurt. It looks like there was women running after the truck. But we, we've seen this movie before, right? In Charlottesville, Ron DeSantis supporting legislation saying essentially it's okay if you feel endangered in a vehicle for you to go ahead and run people over. I, I don't think, I really, really fear it's not the first we've seen of that particular image. Mm -hmm. And to make your, to underscore your point about the alternative to violence, Amanda, the, the uh, since I wrote a book about this, I can tell all of you young pro-choice people um, who were not around and even some older folks who have forgotten, let me tell you how the last time the Supreme Court threatened to overturn Roe v. Wade, how pro-choice America turned the tide in their favor, in favor of abortion rights. It was by knocking off a couple of Republicans who were pro-life in elections. It was an off year at that point, but the point is, they lit, like Doug Wilder, a black man was elected governor of Virginia in 1989, well before that might've been expected. And he was elected in, for 
various reasons, but the num- number one surprise was because it turned out that people that there were enough people in Virginia, which at that point was a conservative state, were were unhappy with the idea of abortion being banned. And so pro-choice people got out, they mobilized, they voted, they knocked off the Republican, they knocked off some other Republicans in 1990, and the message got around. And all you see right now on TV, all of these Republican governors getting out and bragging about how they're going to ban abortion, you go out and knock off a couple of these people in elections, and all of a sudden that bravado will disappear. They will realize that this is a political loser for them, and that is way more effective than all of the marching. Well, to that point, and uh, you know, I will readily admit that I have pretty much been consistent in saying I don't think a road decision will necessarily change the politics of things. But of course, I can be wrong, and you know, everybody has <laughs> the ability to create their own destiny. Should the Democrats want to follow your advice, well, but maybe to that point of how things are changing, at least in this moment. There was a poll recently released by NPR NewsHour Maris in April. In April, it said that Republicans led the congressional ballot 47 to 44%. But now, after the January 6th hearings, in post-Dobbs, Democrats lead 48% to 41%. So do you think that's attributable to row in the hearings? Is there something else going on? Can it stick? That's a great question, Amanda. And so I, to be honest, I can't answer you until it's, it's great that you raised this poll because it makes me, one of the great things I love about polls is you can actually, we don't have to just guess, we can actually look. So I'm going to look at that poll and a couple of others to see whether what we call issue salience has changed, right? Are people voting more on abortion or people voting more on January 6th than they were before? Um, that is to say, like, you know, in polls, they ask you, what's the most important issue? What are the three most important issues? All it would take for Democrats to do better in the midterms than was previously expected is for that alignment, that that ranking of issues to change, right? If suddenly people are, yeah, I care about inflation, but now I'm really concerned about whether I'm, my, my daughter is going to, you know, have her reproductive rights respected, or I'm very concerned about democracy in this country. If, if that alignment could change, then the numbers would change on the congressional ballot. So that might account for it, but I don't know yet. Well, everything is always changing. We will stay on top of it here at The Bulwark, and we will certainly have more to talk and write about. Stick with us. Will, thank you for joining me. And Charlie will be back tomorrow. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.